Hi everyone, I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel and this is One on One, Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. I want to remind all of us that we're right now in the middle of a woman and writing series. And today we're going to be speaking with Shana Goldberg about writing modern wisdom literature. Shana, I hope it's okay with you if I, that, I, that I gave it that name. Sure. <laughs> Shana Goldberg teaches in Migdal Oz. She's a Yoetzer Halacha and a contributing editor for Drachecha, womenandmitzvot.org. She is a frequent blogger for the Times of Israel and the author of the forthcoming book, What Do You Really Want? Trust and Fear in Decision Making at Life's Crossroads and in Everyday Living. Shana, it's really great to have you here. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I really like to start all these conversations in the same way. And while today our conversation is going to focus on your writing and the writing process, I want to hear a little bit about your journey into the world of, of Torah learning uh, and how that started for you. You can take us as, as far back as you'd like. Okay, sure. I think uh, it's impossible to, for me to talk about my relationship with Torah without starting with my home. My parents, Rabbi Yaakov and Abby Lerner, they were the Rabbi and Rebbitzin of the young Israel of Great Neck for 45 years. And uh, I was really privileged to grow up in a home where love of Torah was just part of our everyday life. So from an early age, Parsha with my mother, or before my bat mitzvah, we learned Sefer Achinach, my father and I, from my 10th birthday and on. And it was natural. It wasn't something that was forced on us. It was just part of the atmosphere, part of the avira of the home. And because of that, I think uh, throughout high school, it was something that attracted me, that pulled me. And after my year in Israel and my year since during college, I was fortunate that just as I was finishing Stern, they announced that they were opening up GPATS, the graduate program in advanced Talmudic studies, part of Yeshiva University. And at a time where I wasn't sure where I was going to continue from there, uh, it was an, the next obvious choice. And uh, from there, after my two years of GPATS, I also spent time in the Yotzer Halacha program and really feel like the learning that began in my home became much more formal and much more intense, you know, as I was able to do programs that were very text heavy uh, and also very much cared about the whole person and the relationship, not just in you know, the learning Torah, but the relationship that we have with our teachers and with our peers in those programs very much built me in terms of um, my connection to Torah. I have to say I always have like an internal not just also external, but smile when people speak about their home having been like a really beautiful start for them. And I think that especially for women who for sometimes our journeys in the Torah learning world are very, very diverse because the path is not always so clear. It's a really special thing uh, when people say that, yeah, really in my home, that's where I got all these, you know, the, the foundations. So very much so. That's really, that's really beautiful. Um, what do you what do you love in particular about Torah learning? If we could, you know, sort of an ode an ode to Torah. I'm just I'm hmm. curious. I'll say that for me, I I love the I love the challenge, and I also love the yigia because I have like a real I love the toil. I have a a real love for for working hard, <laughs> which doesn't always mean that I choose things that are easy. But so I'm just curious, what are what are what's something that you love about it? Uh, I very much relate to that. I would say the yigia. For me, part of what was, I guess, has always been so meaningful, but especially I felt this when I was in GPATS, was this overwhelming sense of the vastness of Torah mm. and the humility that that inspired. I think, uh, thank God, 
uh, school um, came easy for me in high school. And when I started GPATS and I was thrown into this sea of Torah and learning Gemara B'Yun and realizing, wow, Gadolalai, like there's so much here and there's so much to know. And what I know is just a cheap, cheap, little small drop in the sea of Torah. Uh, that, that's something that I've carried with me. I think also the ability to be, um, a player in terms of like an insider on the fields. I think about this a lot because my husband's a doctor and, you know, there's a medical jargon that even if you know English, you can't really speak it. Like when we're with other doctors, it's like, hi, you know, hi, we're not understanding what you're talking about. Or the New England Journal of Medicine will come to the house and there's articles there called perspectives that I could identify with and there's others that you really can't understand. And I feel like there's something about... Same thing, there's a safa of Torah that when you've learned it, even if you're not holding and everything there is to know, but just being able to pick up a safer and be part of that, let's call it game, you know, beyond that field in our tradition uh, has also been something that has been um, very, I guess, inspiring to me and something that I try to pass on to my students, just the ability to read text and be engaged with text so that you could talk about the issues that are burning for us even today in 2021 with the perspective of where it came from and ultimately the connection that that gives us to Hashem, you know, feeling like we're speaking a language that uh, when you try to get to know someone, oftentimes you do that by um, meeting them or reading things that they wrote. And at the end of the day, God's Torah is his word. That's what we believe. Um, And I think the more that you are involved in it, the more that you learn it, the closer, uh, hopefully, you feel to Hashem. Yeah, I love that piece about about the language also, about how every profession, you know, my husband's a lawyer, right? Every profession has its own, uh, its, its own language. And when you're an insider, it gives you that flexibility and that ease. And, and you're not, I find also the intimidation factor. A lot of times people feel very excluded from Torah or from, or, or don't have agency in their halachic life because they are not in it enough, meaning not placing blame on anybody, but without that, some sort of basic training, the language or the concepts feel very, very far. And so when you immerse yourself, even to a small degree in Torah, it gives you an agency because you now have those tools in that language. Right. It's so empowering to be yeah. able, you know, when the student asks me a question and I say, you know, you could go open up that safer and they <laughs> realize, wow, I could open up and look it up for myself. Even if afterwards they want to have more of a conversation with someone or turn to a mentor, I think it's so, uh, it opens up worlds to be able to speak that language. Totally. Okay, I want us to get deep in in your book, okay? When is the book going to be, when is it going to be released officially? Uh, God willing, they're hoping for sometime in June. So we're, you know, hoping that it's already available online in America, but the formal release and launch, God willing, will be as the academic year winds down, hopefully before the summer. Okay, I'm just curious before we even talk about the actual topic of your book, you, I'll admit, I, I've I've read your blogs in Time is Real, and I really enjoy them. A little, I won't say I stalk them, but I definitely click on them very quickly <laughs> when they show up there. Uh, and I'm curious, when did your relationship with writing begin? Uh, and uh, yeah, what what kind of form has that taken for you? 
It's a great question. I don't know if I've ever been asked to think about when I started writing. And when I think about it, I guess I have to go back to in 11th grade, I became the op-ed editor of the Central Newspaper. That's a and very I important wrote, position. This is, this is <laughs> I epic. wrote all yeah. these, you know, what I thought were the most passionate, Clearly. enlightened, yeah. uh, intellectual pieces. And I had very strong opinions in high school about all kinds of things that were happening or not <laughs> happening in the school. And it's funny because I hadn't looked at them in years. And then when I, my husband and I were dating, somehow it came up and I was like, Oh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, go get the stack somewhere in my room. And we opened up the first one and I, I, I was horrified. I said, oh we have to God, put this I away. <laughs> I wish that feeling would go away. I still have that about something I could have written last year. Yeah. It's like you're embarrassed. I was it, so right? embarrassed. I guess, you know, I think of it now because I have children in high school and in high school you just think you know everything and you know what everyone else is doing wrong. So the microwave wasn't kosher and this, whatever, all the things that I wrote about. So I began, I think at that point, definitely um, being engaged with writing, but it wasn't something that I did formally. And then about five and a half years ago, when things were very heated here in Israel and specifically in Geshetzion, and there was a series of piguim beginning that to cope with the murder of uh, Etam and Nama Henkin, I just couldn't function. I really couldn't function. And I remember just sitting down at my computer and writing something up that I sent to my students and my family. And someone got a hold of it and they said, you should be publishing this for a broader audience. And that's not really my thing, and I'm not really the type to put myself out there. And basically, after a lot of pressure, I agreed. And at that point, that was the first blog that I wrote for Times of Israel. And over that year, most of the pieces that I wrote were the spur of the moment, something's burning in me, I couldn't calm down until... I had never been like that, ever. Mm -hmm. But it was the writing was therapeutic, and when I would get something out on paper, I would be able to move forward. So even that year, I didn't post everything that I wrote, some things I just sent to my family, some things I posted. And then later on, I guess once that blog became some kind of you know, vehicle of expression, I realized that there's also thoughts of mine, Torah thoughts or more developed thoughts that you could share in this medium, not just when I you know, need to get something out because uh, otherwise there's an, internal, there's an internal storm brewing. Right. And um, since then, I think, I guess that's five years ago, since then, I've been much more, I guess, focused on writing than I had been up until then. I never thought of myself as a writer. Mm. Kind of just happened and developed. Wow. Okay. What did the process look like for you to actually write this book as a book form? Um, how, how did that how did that take shape? Okay, so it's actually an interesting story because my husband and I for years have been discussing these ideas of trust and fear and decision-making and education and parenting. And he would always kind of joke around with me and say, so Shana, when are you going to write the book? When are you going to write the book? Um, but again, I hadn't thought, this was before I was blogging, I hadn't thought of myself as a writer and it was an ongoing joke. And then eight years ago, when my daughter was born and I was on maternity leave, and I'm not so good at sitting still and relaxing, and I wasn't I teaching really, my I full understand. role, my full load. So uh, I said, you know what? I'm going to sit down and start writing up some of these ideas. So at that point, I actually began to write a little bit about 
parenting with trust, educating with trust, ideas of which I had been thinking about for a long time. And then I shelved it. When the maternity leave ended, I went back to my full-time teaching, kind of forgot about it, um, wasn't something that was ongoing. And then about a year and a half ago, uh, when she was already seven, so seven years had gone by, I had a series of uh, conversations, not with students, actually with peers, which was really interesting because a lot of the book, it was based on things that grew out of my my teaching. But I actually had a series of conversations with peers who were struggling with different decisions. And when I said, you know, I'll share with you something that sometimes I share with students. So the reaction of a few of them in a row were like, Shana, you have to write this up. You need to do something with this. And at that point, I actually said, you know what? I did start writing something on this years ago. I took it out and I realized that what I'd writing about then, which was parenting and educating, I still wanted to address that, but that I wanted the heart of the book to really be about decision making. And then after that, take it into different specific areas such as parenting. So it was very much a process um, that spans years in a way and many, many conversations. But that it, it took a shift when you realized that it had it was going to be interesting for a peer audience as well. Yes. You're saying that was the shift, meaning you're used to teaching and being instructive to younger students, but all of a sudden, a little bit like the blog, you realize, oh, this actually could be interesting for people that are also peers of mine and, and others out there in a book reading audience. So that was sort of like a, yes. a moment. A few of my, again, two friends specifically, they were in the midst of a tough decision and they found this to be helpful. And then a third friend of mine who I shared these ideas with, she mentioned to me that she had been talking to a friend who was struggling. And because of a conversation we had had, she said she felt empowered to kind of be there for her and guide mm-hmm. her. And that's when I realized, you know, maybe there's a broader audience for ideas like this, not just my specific students, but maybe mentors, parents, uh, even grandparents, you know, mm-hmm. people who are engaging and not just for themselves, but even in terms of um, supporting others. So that was a real shift. Okay. So take us through again, it's, we're all going to read the book and buy the book I, either <laughs> way, but take us through in a basic a few basic points about what is this idea of trust versus fear uh, and how does that play into decision-making? Let me start with uh, saying how I started thinking about this, which was really, I guess, two things together. One was that I said, my husband and I have been discussing this for years, goes back to a quote that he had read uh, many years back by Dr. Mordechai Breuer, who was talking about the educational philosophy of his grandfather, Rabbi Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, and he said uh, something like, in education, let us be guided by trust mm-hmm. and not by fear. And Judah and I, and my husband Judah and I, had, had spent a lot of time thinking about why are trust and fear opposites? Why is he presenting it like that? Um, and then because of that, and because I was very attuned to that, in conversations with students, I began to notice that uh, in real specifically as a mashkicha ruchani in Megdaluz, I began to pay attention that First of all, the bulk of the conversations that students wanted to have surrounded one decision or another, sometimes major decisions like next step in life, and sometimes simple decisions like, should I learn halacha or gemara? Should I learn machshava or tanach? And when I would engage in conversation from a place where I very much did not want to be in a position to tell them what to do, even if I had a personal opinion, I, I, I do not want to take responsibility for other people's 
decisions. But more importantly than that, I'm a very, very big believer in autonomy and in agency and in empowering people to really believe in themselves. So I began to notice that if I just paid attention to what was being expressed from a place of fear or what seemed to be what they really wanted, which is what I call trusting your instinct, your deep intuition about what you really want, that oftentimes that would allow me to give them insight into what I was hearing. Meaning when I was younger and I would sit down with a student and I'd kind of be nervous of what am I supposed to do and what am I supposed to say and what are they looking, what's my role in all this? What are they looking um, for from me? Over time, I began to have a much clearer picture of my place in the process and how I could support them to understand what they were really looking for. And that's really what the book talks about. The book is about uh, how to be attentive to our inner wants, how to know what's something that's really pulling at us, how to identify different fears that may be getting in the way. In the book, I try to label some common fears that seem to stop people from doing what they really want. Like what other people are going to think of you and... Right. Yeah, what other people are going to think of you, sometimes our own self-perception. Mm-hmm. How could it be that someone who's as intellectual and as driven as me could date someone who's a second-grade teacher? You know, mm-hmm. Not that there's anything wrong with being a second-grade yeah. teacher, but meaning somebody's self-perception. Or how could someone like me go to X school? So there's that. There's mm-hmm. Is this normal? So often we're afraid of, are, am I normal? Is this normal? Sometimes it's fear of failure, classic one, or rejection. Sometimes it's just that we don't want to um, admit that maybe we've wasted time on something or there's resources that we've invested or now we're going to have to change course. So uh, That's a big, I'll say personally, that's a huge one for me. Yeah. Yeah, no much. I, I mean, that one was really driven days. home by um, when I speak to students or there's people close to in my life that their entire childhood or adolescence, they thought they were headed towards one career and they really, really invested in it, right? Take somebody who thinks they're going to be a lawyer and they spent summers interning and they study for hours for the LSATs and even going back to high school, mock trial, debate, and then here they are in law school and they're not enjoying it. What do they do at that point? So if they know that they're not happy and they want something else, sometimes what stops them is, but how, how could it be that I wasted all this time and they end up, right? Or even on the very small level, I give an example of the book of this has happened to my husband and I where we go out, we get a babysitter, we pay for a movie, and then you're sitting in the movie and you're just really not enjoying it. <laughs> and you want to leave, but you're also feeling like, like but, but we I paid. We paid, we paid, we We paid, and, and my husband is the one who years ago said to me, the money's gone, like we paid for it. If we're not happy, let's get out of here. <laughs> and that was really um, a mindset shift for me that, Right. You're right. We don't have to stay here just because we paid for these tickets if we're not enjoying it. So there's on the small level and there's on the big level, but there's certainly a lot of fears that stop us from doing what we want. Before you go any further, um, because I want to talk also about another concept that I, I thought was very insightful in the book, I want to just take a, a moment to think about where we are uh, in this moment of time, because you mentioned that you know when you first became a teacher, 
it was almost clear to you that there was like a top-down concept mm-hmm. that like I'm the teacher, so I know, and they're coming to me for advice. And maybe that's also how I'm going to put you and I in the same age group, right? Whatever number of years between us, because we would go to people and get advice, and we expected for them to guide us and send us somewhere, so send us somewhere good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but the world. Again, the extreme expression of it is the selfie, right? But the world has shifted into a, a different space. Um, I would say even in those years when we were somewhat younger, but maybe it took time for it to get to us in the circles we were in. But it, it became really, it's become really inappropriate, right? For someone else to come and say, you should do this, right? Meaning this is what I think is best for you. If not someone, that that stops people. Not that it stops people. And I'll also say that I'm also very aware that I'm speaking, if I'm speaking right now just within the Orthodox world, I'm speaking about a specific group because you still have plenty of people who are living in a more Rebbe-centered kind of world. And I recognize that that still exists. But for those of us who aren't in that kind of religious dynamic, that... Uh, it's really, it's going to be more rare, okay? And and that you find, I, I also even years ago remember hearing that people say, when you go to these big, the big post scheme, right? I'm not speaking in the Haredi world. You go to the big post scheme in, in the religious world that's not the Haredi world. And, and once in a while, if you ask a very specific question, they would tell you an answer to your question. But when people would go and ask about a particular topic, often they would come back and be like, they didn't tell me what to do, right? Or they, right. they told me. was definitely known for that. He was known for that. And, and uh, yeah, my father is a Talmud of his, and my husband was also a Talmud of his, and that approach certainly has influenced, you know, my education and my upbringing. But I think even in, let's say, the Shana Ba'aretz world, that I'm very much a part of. I wish I could say Which is across the, ga- the, the gap year, yeah, the gap, gap year, year world, the gap year world of yeshivot and midrashot. I wish I could say across the board that there's been a shift. But part of what has motivated me to write this book and to really get it out there on paper is because I think that it's something that we still struggle with, and I see. I see educators struggling with it. I see students struggling with it. And at some point I kind of said, you know what? I'm not sure that people are people and they have their approach. And I'm not sure that we could convince educators to take a different approach, but we could certainly empower students to be aware of when they're being influenced um, mm-hmm. to trust themselves or whether they are, you know, being taught from a motivated even from a place of fear and sometimes guilt. And I think the more students shame, are aware by the way, of that, which is a word you didn't use in the book, but shame yes. is a big one for sure. Yeah. And I think the more students are aware of that, if they say, wait, one second, something's not feeling right to me. So then we could tackle this issue maybe from the bottom up. Interesting. Yeah. I really, I, I don't really spend time in that, in that, um, both the age bracket of the students and also of those, learning frameworks as much. So I'm happy, first of all, that you clarify that for me. I've been in the world of adults, and I guess in the world of adults, you take autonomy uh, for granted. Um, and so that's a, that's an interesting point. I, I also want you to touch upon the specifically the decision-making. You have a concept also about the next best decision, which I really liked, by the way. Mm-hmm. I really like that idea. So could you just touch upon that also, what that what that concept means? Sure. It's also funny that you called it the next best decision. Is because, that what it said in the book? Well, that's what I always <laughs> called it, the next best decision, meaning all you could do is make your next best decision. Yeah. When I gave it to a few friends to read, they thought, first they were confused because they thought I was saying the next best 
like second best. Oh, so I, I can't tell you we spent days thinking about how we I really like the next best decision. And then one of my friend's husbands was like, just switch it to the best next decision after we had been. So in the book, it's actually called the The best best next next decision, decision. even though I still think of it as the next best decision. So yes, (laughs) um, I think that concept, uh, it grew out of two things for me, really. One is in our own lives, in my husband and I, like in our life, there's so many points where we ourselves could not have predicted the way that things would have turned out. And we early on in our marriage, somebody had said to us, my husband was in medical school. He went to medical school thinking that maybe he wouldn't even practice, the whole crazy story. And he was always nervous about how things would turn out. And at some point, someone gave him this amazing advice, which was just at any at any point where you need to make a decision, you will know at that point what's the right thing to do. So we put it into this phrase, you know, the next best or the best next decision, but that ended up being our guiding principle, meaning when we should make Aliyah or where we should live or what school our kids should go to. It was always like, you know what, at the time that we need to make that decision, we're going to have all the factors in front of us to be able to make the best decision that we can. If we try to think now about something that's not relevant immediately now, we could end up approaching it wrong because we don't have all the factors laid out in front of us. So very much in our own lives, we've lived that and experienced that and definitely benefited from it. And in addition, because I teach young women and I find myself very often in conversations with women who are dating and also sometimes men who are dating, very much in dating, I feel like that concept is very strong. You know, uh, this just happened even last week, talking to a woman who is dating for several months and she's not sure and she'll say something like, I don't know, maybe I should break up. I said, sounded pretty happy. Like, why would you want to break up? And she'll say something like, because I don't know if this is going to work out. So if we're eventually going to break up, so maybe I should break up now because I want to save myself the heartbreak. And you stop and you say, wait one second, you're going to break up now because you meet, but what if in a few months everything, you know, is wonderful. All you could do is think about the decision that's right in front of you, which is, do you want to go out with him again? Do you want to get to know him better? Mm -hmm. Are you ready to walk away? And I think that focuses people on the here and now and enables them. And I really believe if you keep making one good decision after another, then you get to where you're supposed to be, or at least you could own your decisions. Yeah. I I wanted to, first of all, just to throw in a few phrases, because When we try and predict the future, it creates a lot of anxiety for people, which is something that absolutely we all know as as a world. There's a big uh, a big a big uh, plague of that in the world, and a lot of that's because people have been functioning for too many generations, even two, thinking that they can have control over what happens in front of them. And so, so we've had like a big backlash in the world, right, in all different ways, whether they come from the east or wherever they come from. That we say, let's take a step back. Let's see where we are now, right? There's this, I'll, I'll say, I'll bring in a personal example from my family. So I live in Israel, but no one else lives here, okay? And it reflects itself also in mindset and all different things that, that come up. And I have a brother who I love. Shout out to Joel. He'll never listen to this. Um, <laughs> so that he's all about the strategic thinking, okay? Now, strategic thinking, the word comes up, in an, and we, I turn to him plenty for advice. I, I respect him very much. And... Uh, and he and strategic thinking for him has worked well over time, 
but sometimes when you live in another part of the world where like things are a little bit less predictable in the long run or even in the short run and uh and strategic thinking is really important and there also is a need to that that now I'm confused what the phrase is best your best next decision okay so yeah. and <laughs> uh and it's that approach has been one for me without before having met you and seeing you written in the book is something that very much has has spoken to us over time and sometimes it can even it can even come to pass so that decision wasn't a great one but if you know that when you made it that you made it with all the facts in front of you and you made it willingly and and knowledgeably then you say okay that was another exactly. step on the journey as opposed to and again I'll use a personal example we lived somewhere else for the past 2 years and it didn't work out we built the house there we did the whole the whole bit and it didn't work out and there were some signs in the beginning that it probably wasn't necessarily going to be the best decision but we made it then we made it together and we went both willingly and it turned out that it wasn't great and we we moved and you know we moved back and uh to the Jerusalem area and for those who think the long-term strategic, it was like, that was a big fat mistake, you know? And we're like, no, it wasn't. Meaning it was not right for us, but we made it. It was another step in the journey. There was a lot that we learned from that decision. There was even a lot from the tremendous difficulties that it created for us. But it's not a mistake. And so when you break up the decision into parts, and it's not like this leads to the rest of my life, um, which I will say I have a tendency to think like that, and I'm <laughs> thankful to be married to a man who doesn't. Um, so it just makes everything much more. I couldn't relate more. Palatable. That's exactly, I think, doesn't mean that every decision that you make is going to work out, but when you know that you made the best decision that you could in that moment, so then you could own it and you understand it and you don't necessarily regret it because you know why you made it, but then you say, okay, we've reached the next crossroads, time for a new decision. Right? And it's not the same decision anymore because it's a new decision because no, now you're totally already different. living there. It's and totally you're different. So now it's not should we live there and should we move there, but it's, okay, should we stay here or should we go? And it's a new decision, but then you're able to make that the best that you can. So in terms of what you said about strategic planning, I think that that's part of the shikul, uh, part of what you take into account, meaning I'm a big control person and part of facing the best next decision is a little bit letting go totally. of that long-term totally. control because I like to think that I could control everything. And then I've been reminded too many times that you can't. Um, but at the same point, that doesn't mean that you don't take into account your bigger dreams, goals, aspirations. That factors into your best next decision the same way so many other things do. Yeah, that idea, that idea comes up so much. Meaning I often think it's it was it's been true for women for a very long time, but I think it's also become true for men as well, just because the the work life has shifted. That for women it's always been very clear that life happens in chapters, just because biologically our life happens right. in chapters. And so while those of us who want the planning and who have bigger, you know, broader goals it sort of helps us gain perspective on like, okay, this is in the now or this is these few years, but I, I know where, where the train ultimately I would like it to be heading. Uh, I think that as a world for all different reasons and modernity and how the job force has shifted that, uh, and people just don't stay in jobs right. for a very long time. That's right. the point I'm trying to get at. That yes. No one stays in jobs for too long. Right. And, you, and everybody generation. says, I've never heard anybody in my peer group say to me, 
yes, I am now happy for the next 30 years. Meaning <laughs> it's not even anyone's goal anymore. Right. Like no one's goal is to be in that. That yes. is like a shameful idea that I'm going to Whereas be. Whereas most of my friends' parents, for sure, their dads, I mean, they entered into a job and they stayed for in sure. that firm or for in that, sure. you know, for most of their lives. And it's just not what we see around us, which in some ways good. There's, I think things are more there's, dynamic, there's a, more fluid. There's a healthy place in the yeah, middle. We need continuity and we also need, we also need to be open to shifting and growing and Right. We're a generation, generations at this point of people who are like very growth oriented in a way sometimes where we don't realize part of the anxiety yes. that you mentioned because you never know kind of if this is for real or if this is going to yeah. last. Yeah. That stability, I guess, is missing. And so we need that. Like I'm sure we'll, right, like all things, trends, we bounce from one into the other and somehow we'll end up somewhere healthy in the middle. But like there needs to be some sort of balance between the continuity and also being aware of our need for challenge and growth and shifting when we, when we feel needed. Meaning I think your book is even more poignant just to also circle back to it because you come, you came to this place of meeting 18, 19 year olds who are all are really just by nature at a very decision making space in their life or 2021 or whatever it is, that age bracket. Um, and, but because the world shifts so much today, I feel that, people are either being forced into decision-making places or they are forcing themselves into decision-making places at such a greater, a more rapid pace than our parents' generations were. Meaning they're like, they're in their job, they're happy. Ugh, but I've been in it for four years. I can't, I have a friend, you know, she's a nurse and she's just needs the next challenge. It's just, she needs to, she needs to move forward already. And, and, and what that means is that there's a lot of right, shift in decision-making in a short different. amount of time. What we're looking for, our expectations are different. What we're looking for out of a career, uh, a lot of things have shifted. So very much contributes into that. And also as parents, I think things have shifted very much for our children. And therefore, being able to recognize that is also a big part of this. Being able to guide them and you know support them in being able to make the best next decisions as opposed to being racked with anxiety that you spoke about earlier is very, I think, crucial in the age that we're living in. I also want to touch upon the point specifically about the trust idea. So first, I always want to read two lines in the book that I really liked. I apologize, I don't actually remember where it's from. It's somewhere in the beginning. While developing self-confidence has never been simple, the challenge has been magnified by an abundance of choice, an emphasis on pluralism, and current trends in parenting. The need to educate toward and encourage trust has never been greater. And I want to touch upon that point about, because you speak a lot about trust, which is a knowing, right? And these are words that I've put in them as I'm reading the book, so please correct me along the way, that very much what you encourage is that this is not a top-down approach, that you speak to a person, you're doing reflective listening, essentially, right? In Hebrew, we call it shikuf, you're doing reflective listening. And what you're trying to get from them is where are you holding at this moment, right? Where, where, where is that? The decision is already somewhere inside of you because ultimately we have, we're swayed in some, in some uh, form. And, and so the person, you try and help them get to a place where they realize what it is that they want. Right. Um, that's why I called it. What do you really want? Cause I feel like it always comes back to that, you know, but this and this, and it's like, but what do you really want? And it's somewhere in there. Usually they so know this, 
I, I want to talk about this because it's really a skill. Okay, what you're what you're describing. Some of us grew up in homes that that gave us confidence to trust our inner our inner sense or our intuition. Uh, I definitely came from a home like that. As long as there was some thought process behind what I was doing, thankfully, also none of us ever wanted to do anything that was crazy. I don't know what my parents would have done if we had. Okay, right. but <laughs> our, our intuitions led us into largely normative spaces. Okay, so mm-hmm. but it was very much a home where that was emphasized. So, but but many people are not. Okay, and they and this isn't about a bad home. It's simply about the whole culture in the home. Many people grow up in a home where there's an idea of right and wrong, and they are through all different either overt or covert messaging are taught that they don't necessarily know what's right for them inside. And so a lot of times it's a cultivated sense that people have to get to. It's not just a cognitive, if I think hard enough, I'll discover what it is that I like, but it's actually getting to know something deep inside you that you can connect with and be like, oh, I'll even give a very trivial example. Mm Mm-hmm ordering food in a restaurant. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay, so I'll just give... Um, Comes I'm talking about my family a lot today, by the way. So my sister. My sister never knew what to order in a restaurant, okay? And I was like, sit down, three seconds later, I know what I want. I have to tell you, it was always a great dish. Like, meaning, I knew what I wanted. I, I was like, had somehow... I, I figured it out, and it was very clear what I wanted. And it was a personality difference. We grew up in the same home, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and also, and this happens, all, and this annoys my husband sometimes, but he's like, well, it's Monday, so what should we make for Shabbos? And I'm like, it's too early. I need, we need to talk about this on Wednesday. He does a food shopping, so he has the right to ask me on Monday. I said, I, I kind of need to feel it. Like, I need to feel <laughs> <laughs> You know, and he's just like, what do you want to feel? And I'm like, no, no I, I need to feel it. Like, I don't know. Like, do we want salmon? Do we want to have meat? I'm just not sure, you know? So some of us have like a little bit more, and this doesn't necessarily make life easier, by the way, but some of us have a more like developed intuition in that regard but then sometimes you'll meet people and they really don't like they're not they're not in touch with that and there's a certain amount of work that they have to do very much so to get in touch with that space very much so and um way more than i care about teaching children or developing commitment to judaism all things i care deeply about but much more important to me is that my students my children are healthy people who know how to. If you don't trust yourselves, what what do you have? How do you how do you function? Either you feel dependent on people, or you, you don't feel lost. You way. don't function you don't. well. Yeah. And for me, that has been, I guess, a cornerstone of my educational philosophy of of empowering young people to trust themselves, to find that inner voice, to to know that they have the best sense of themselves. Of course, you could talk to people, and sometimes there's even a therapy process that's needed or somebody's really struggling with something. This book is no way meant to be in place of therapy, you know, which we could talk about, but just empowering people that at the end of the day, you know yourself better than anyone else. And there's something in you. I hear you. I hear you saying that you really want that, but I also hear you saying that you're afraid to pursue that. So let's discuss why you're afraid and let's see if those fears are things that in the end should, you know, uh, register as reasons not to pursue what it is you really want but let's at least be honest first that you do know what you want it's deep in there and the ability to hear that to trust that to run with it is something that is a skill that can be developed i've seen 
at least in my teaching experience, young women who really struggled with this for all the reasons in those two lines that you just quoted because of helicopter parenting today and everything was always solved for them. They didn't have to think so much or because there's just an abundance of choice or because, I mean, I had a class this week where we were discussing controversial topics and I, I asked them what their opinion is. It's a class that I call opinions and it's about empowering them to have an opinion. And a student, you know, she said, well, I don't feel like I can have an opinion because I don't know enough or um, it's not my right. And of course you could have an opinion. They're almost, we live in an age where people are also been taught that they can't have an opinion because it might offend someone. It may, you know, oh, violate that yeah. really okay. has contributed to young people today. Wow. They're afraid to have a stand because especially in the cancel culture that Americans are growing up in today, yeah. the, the sensitivity to saying anything that may offend someone in some way has very much impacted on their ability to say, hey, but but I think that or I feel differently. And obviously we have to do things sensitively and carefully and gently in general. But um, that doesn't mean you're not entitled to have thoughts about it. I will also add that um, in terms of honing in that sense, that there are a number of really, really powerful ways that people can do that. And so I also just want to say if anybody here is listening and, and that speaks to them at any age bracket that they want to work on that, um, that all of the um, all of the physical practices that have come in from the East essentially work on that, uh, whether it's yoga uh, or all different uh, kind of um, physical uh, w- different ways of using our body, uh, they they actually heighten our ability to be in contact with those parts of ourselves. Um, and so I again, anyone who wants to reach out more, send an email. I'm happy to, to schmooze about that more. And I'll also say something that really came up for me when I was reading Shana's book was the concept called focusing. Uh, and the concept of focusing is uh, was was uh, put into a practice by a philosopher named uh, Eugene Gendlin. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Uh, and he speaks about something called the the felt sense. And there's actually he has a very simple book called Focusing, where there's a six part a six step process where you need to do it with somebody else. You need to have a partner, uh, but you work on being able to identify in yourself that that sense you have or that truth. It may not be, I have a question and here's my answer. But you might have to break it up into smaller parts, which we often have to when we come to these decisions. Right in this book, we're breaking it up into the fears we have. So in this one, in this kind of process, there are other parts that you break it up into. But it's a way of being able to read your your intuition on your body. It's a fascinating thing. So I also, anyone who's interested in that, like could feel free to, to Google that and check it out. Um, also, the trend today, there's so much talk about mindfulness. I think it's also connected to this. Yeah. You know, like being able to really stop and be mindful of how you're feeling and in so many ways, also in the physical way, right? What are you feeling right now? What are those sensations that are running through you? When you talk about that decision, do you feel your body reacting to it in a certain way? So there's a lot of elements, I think, of this that could be explored further. I'm also just curious when you were writing the book, were there any sort of other fields that you were checking into or other literature that was enriching this theory that you were growing over the years? So I'm very honest and direct in the book about I'm not a therapist and I don't have any kind of degree in psychology or social work. Most of the book is really talking about everyday situations and not situations, you know, where someone's struggling with a deeper process that would really have to be addressed. Uh, so the book's not meant, again, to take the place of that. In writing the book, I did read 
um, you know, different books, different articles. I did have conversations, extensive conversations with different people in the psych fields. I had a very eye-opening conversation with Dr. David Pelkovitz about putting this into the context. He's the one that really focused me on the context of he sees it in, in general in his practice at Yeshiva University, how just adolescents, young adults are struggling so much more with decisions mm -hmm. than they had in the past. So putting it into the context of the kinds of things that you spoke about a few minutes ago when you said that quote. And um, in general, I'm fortunate in my family to have psychiatrists and psychologists <laughs> and therapists and uh, a lot of people in the field to run these things by. So while I by no you know, means I'm any kind of expert or any kind of professional, it was important to me that there's nothing in the book that um, is inappropriate or is yeah. crossing a boundary no, that is not, yeah. you know, not my place. Uh, that there were some examples even that I bring in the book that I changed or I honed a little bit to make sure that nobody would see this as some kind of replacement for deeper work that needs to be done. Yeah, no, that you make that very clear in the book. Um, I guess I want to ask one other question about the the content per se. The you do address it briefly in the book, but I'm curious to hear you speak about it here. When we speak about us knowing what we want, or what do you actually really want, or or putting us at the center, which there's it's always been to a certain degree in the world, but obviously it's received much more. Uh, emphasis and weight in the past in the past years. I don't even know how to put a, a time on that. How does that fit in to a, a, an, an orthodox lifestyle, which is essentially well, we do have autonomy, but it's it's very clearly limited in certain, <laughs> right. certain ways. So I'm curious how you how you think about that. Do you even think that they that they have any sort of contradiction between them? If we place so much emphasis on what it is that we really want at this moment, where does the, is there eventually a glass ceiling? Okay, so let me be very honest about the fact that there's for sure people who have different feelings about this, you know, than I do, different Hashkafic approaches. And even my sister and I, who are very close, and I think Begadol in general, we share a similar approach in terms of how we educate, we've been joking that we should, you know, sell what do you really want along with show want, what does Hashem really want, and we'll sell them together. Um, because what if what you really want isn't what Hashem really wants? Now, I, I happen to believe very strongly, this is really at the core of who I am, that Hashem gave us Bechirach of Shit. Meaning, we could have been Malachim, we could have been angels, we could have been robots. God created us with the not just the ability with the the charge to make our own decisions that's what he wants us to be doing here and to be making the best decisions that we can and to be making the world as good of a place as it could be he gave us that that's what makes us human that's our job in life to to make a decision so i feel like that as a concept does not run contrary to orthodoxy or to halacha now, the truth is that most of the book talks about people who are deciding between good and good, right? Not between yeah. right and wrong. Uh, when it's right and wrong, or again, what is right and wrong? There's definitely some things that are wrong well, in terms of they're not halakhic decisions. That right. comes up a lot. It right. comes up a lot. And people are making, well, I just don't feel that this reflects who I really am. Okay, so what do you do with that? <laughs> right. So when I'm talking to a student, I think, you know what? 
Um, I'm very comfortable with the fact that they know who I am. They know what I believe. They know how I live my life. Talking to them and hearing what's on their mind to me is not invalidating the place that I put halacha, uh, where I hold it or how important I think it is. At the end of the day, though, this young woman or young man or my child still has to figure out where they're going to go from here. So if they're saying, um, you know, let's take an example of a young couple that's dating and they're struggling with Shmirat Nigiyah. That's an issue that comes up a lot. So they're not looking for me to say whether it's mutar or a sore for them to have a physical relationship before they're married. They know what the halacha says and they know what I think. But as they're struggling with this and I'm listening and they're weighing all different kinds of different factors, I could say to them, listen, like you have to figure out what you really want. And what I, what you really want is what you really want in a deeper sense, meaning I'm not talking about what you want in the moment, what you want, you know, in that impulsive sense or like something's pulling at me right now. I'm talking about what you want in a deeper sense. Now, sometimes what somebody wants is to be more committed, but they're struggling the same way I may want to get up and daven in the morning. But at that moment, I really wanted to stay in bed, right? But there's what I want and there's what I really want. And sometimes, no, what they really want is to do something that is contrary to halacha. And what I could say to them is, listen, you have to be honest about it. Like, you know what the halacha is. Um, you know what the different factors are that you're weighing. Are you ready to take responsibility for that? I always tell my students, it's much harder for me when people are in denial or like in the Shmat Nigiyah example, if they'll say like, oh, God doesn't really want this or, um, no, I really think that he's okay with what I'm doing or I didn't mean that because then it's like, listen, I'm not sure you're ready to take responsibility for the decisions that you're making. But if you're telling me that you're struggling with this and this is the best that you could do right now, all any of us could do is the best that we could do right now. So then that means you're making the best decision that you can right now. Who knows how you'll feel next week? It leaves open. I talk a lot in the book about living with tensions. I mean, when we hear about tension, who wants to live with tension? I am a huge believer in living with tension because if you live with tension, that means that you're holding on. Instead of saying, this relationship is important to me and halacha is not important to me, you're saying, well, this relationship or this physical relationship is important to me and halacha is really important to me and I'm in tension right now, but I'm not willing to just close the door on halacha. Right now, I'm making the best decision that I can given all the things that I'm dealing with and all the struggles, but maybe my next decision will be something different because the halacha is still here right now and I think in the long run, that brings people closer to halacha and closer to orthodoxy and closer to their relationship with Hashem because we know that life isn't black and white and it's not all or nothing. And I think when it's set up, like either you're halachic or you're not, or there's a right decision and there's a wrong decision. It's just people further away. It's yeah. kind of like disconnecting from a child, right? Instead of saying, our relationship isn't in a good place right now, but I'm never closing the door on you. Right. And leaves open the possibility that they'll always... Right. Walk back in. So I could imagine that there are colleagues of mine, you know, peers or educators who would feel uncomfortable with this because they're like, how could you rubber stamp someone doing something that's not halachic? That's not how I view it. I don't think I'm rubber stamping. I think I'm very clear with the student. They know and I know. We, we all know what we're dealing with. But the idea that you could push someone to do something that they're not ready to take ownership and that it will turn out okay. 
even if on the surface it looks okay, someone recently was telling me, but I believe it's the right thing to make Aliyah. So I tell my students they have to make Aliyah. And maybe there was a student that didn't want to, and now they did. And everything is sababa, and they're happy, and everything's working out. Like You don't know the prices of that decision. You don't know if there's inner resentment. You don't know if something doesn't work out 20 years from now. They're struggling with one of their children here, and they say, oh, if only I had listened to my gut and not done what I didn't want to do. I think that the gap between the way things look and the way things are is huge. And therefore, as an educator, I don't think that we ever come out ahead by pushing people, even if in the short term you could pack yourself on the back and you could say, I pushed this kid to do the right thing. In the long term, I'm in it for the, I always tell my students, I'm in it for the long term. I'm not in it to that, the end of their shana, or their, their gap year in Israel, or even five years, I could say, wow, look at these amazing students. I'm in it so that, you know, 60, 70, 80 years from now, we see healthy individuals who feel empowered to make good decisions in their life. Shane, as we begin to wrap up our conversation, I, uh, I wanted to ask you, having, after having written this book and been through this process, what kind of books would you like to see women writing? I'm speaking obviously here about religious women writing books that are somewhat for the religious world, since that's the focus of our series. And I'm just curious where, where you think we could benefit from that and how much we want to encourage the women listening. I'd like to see women writing on everything, on Tanakh, on Halakha, on Gemara, on Machshava. And the reason is, is because the insight, the perspective, the feminine voice, what it brings to the conversation is always going to be something a little bit different than what the male voice brings just because the nature of life. I mean, very involved in this website, Drachaha, uh, run by Lori Novik, where very much we're trying to bring the halakha, but add in the female perspective. And even that, I think, adds a lot to the conversation. So women should get out there and not be afraid to uh, share their share their their insights. I mean, okay, to close out this conversation, are you ready for a little lightning round? Okay. Okay. Here we go. Associative. No, you just <laughs> throw it out there. Okay. Shana, what books are currently on your nightstand? I wish I could read at night and not fall asleep after a line. But uh, <laughs> yes. the psych books, you know, I, I just read for the second time. Maybe you should talk to someone. Oh, by I love Gottlieb. that. I just mentioned that in our last episode. Oh, oh really? I had book. to read it again, and it's I just read book. the choice. Victor Frankel, he's mentioned in all those books. All the, the, the I guess, <laughs> this genre yeah. that encourages people to be in touch with themselves. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's a great book. If you could sit down with anyone for coffee or tea or whatever your beverage of choice is, uh, who would it be? Hmm. It's a tough question. I would go with my grandmother's. Um, one of my grandmothers I'm named after, my mother's mother, Jenny Dvoretsky. I never met her. And my father's mother, thank God, I did have a deep relationship with, but both of them had such resilience. Both had different challenges and faced a lot of hardship and faced it with courage and dignity and strength. And the older I get and the more challenges and raising kids, the more I wish that I could sit down and talk to them about it. Yeah, I hear that. Uh, I think also as I, life gets more challenging, I keep wishing. No one's asked me this question if I did, I the more life has passed, I, I would say my father, who I uh, very much miss. Um, what is your favorite tefillah? Hmm. 
As a tefillah, like Kabbalah Shabbat, hands down, mm. just wait for it every week. Nice. It's so beautiful. But as a specific tefillah, I have to go with the Hiratzon that we say at Hadakatni wrote. I just, again, like maybe a, parenting children as they're getting older, but when we say, you know, uh-huh. the mix of words there, Ohavei Hashem and Yerei Elohim, I love that Ohavei Hashem comes first, that positive relationship. I love that Anshaya met people of truth, people of dignity, um, who are Mi'irim et Holam, who are giving to the world, not just with their Torah, but with their Masim Tovim. Very meaningful tefillah. Yeah, we, we sing that, my, me and my girls, when we light candles on Friday night. Mm, beautiful. Uh, something unexpected uh, that you feel passionate about, meaning mm. other than the things that you've already said, <laughs> you feel passionate about. I, I mean, this is connected, but I've always felt very passionate about women's education. I'm also from an all-girls house. I'm the oldest of four girls. So women and women's education and Torah education. But now I have, thank God, four boys and a girl. And I've become very passionate about men's education and specifically men's education about the world of women and about sensitivities mm-hmm. and about kind of um, understanding what it's like to be an Orthodox woman, being sensitive to that. I love that my boys have their eyes open. Like we were in Svad a few years ago and with Migdaluz and we were at Kabbalah Shabbat and somebody clapped on the bima and shushed the women from singing. And my, my students counted it okay. My boys came home and they said, it's not okay. And I was just, you know, those, just that sensitivity has totally. been something very important to me. If I ever have boys, I hope to, I hope to raise them <laughs> like that. <laughs> Uh, any hidden talents? No. Okay. Sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> what you see is what you get. Okay. I'm an open book. Your, your talents are out there. <laughs> Something that you are grateful for in your life right now? I have to say my parents made Aliyah this past summer in the midst of COVID. Couldn't have been a better time. And the fact that they're here and my youngest sister, Sefi, God willing, is coming this summer. And that will be it. My parents and the four of us. All here in Israel is a dream that we never really actually thought would happen. Sometimes I think about the fact that years down the road, people are going to look back and say, oh, yeah, there was this little blip for like hmm. 50, 60 years where the family was in America. I mean, we're so American. But the fact that, thank God, our family is now here in Israel is something that I just feel so grateful for. Every time I get in the car and go visit my parents in Katamon, I just can't believe that. That they're here, that yeah. I can visit them. Very wow. grateful for that. That's really unbelievable. Shayna, thank you so much for this conversation. It's really a, a pleasure to, to meet you and, and to speak with you about it. And I wish you a lot of atzlachan. I hope that this book reaches all of, the, all of the people that it should. Thank you, Yosefa. This was so enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Thank you to the entire Matan team for their input. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, and Matan's website, and write us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.